Hey, it's Ian Altman. Before we dive into this week's episode, do me a favor and stop by and visit GiversEdge.com. There are only a few gifts I've received over the years that really stood out, and they were all sourced by the ruling group who you can find at GiversEdge.com. Hey, thanks for listening. It's Ian Altman. And on this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-author of Same Side Selling, Jack Quarles, to discuss his latest book, Expensive Sentences. Now, Jack is a guy who spent two decades in purchasing and procurement and was instrumental in the success of Same Side Selling and getting that buyer's perspective. We're going to talk about some of those expensive sentences that cost people money and cost you opportunities. We'll talk about the frustration in the buyer-seller interaction and some of the key terms that you can listen for that will signal opportunities within your clients. I'm telling you, it's always a wealth of knowledge when I speak to Jack. Stay tuned for my interview with Jack Quarles. Jack Quarles, welcome back to the program. Hey, Ian. It's great to be with you. Great to be talking with you. So, Obviously, people know you as as my good friend and co-author of Same Side Selling, and today we're talking about this idea of expensive sentences. So tell us, what do you mean when you say expensive sentences? Well, Ian, you know, uh, again, it's, it's so fun to be talking to you. We wrote our book, Same Side Selling, and, you know, if we go back to our first conversations about that, I think it really came out of frustration, right? Because you and I were both pretty frustrated from different perspectives at the inefficiency in the buyer-seller relationship. And so we really wanted to solve that problem, and I think we did a pretty good, uh, pretty good effort at uh, helping some people progress on that. Well, I had a similar frustration that led to this book, Expensive Sentences. And it was because when we make decisions in a corporate environment, especially on a team, you know, we come in with a plan and a process and some tools and some analysis, but what often happens is we get thrown off that process. We get derailed, and what often derails us is one of these little phrases that sounds like wisdom, but it can actually be toxic. So, so, so somebody says, "Yeah, toxic well, they're wisdom, the best. toxic That's wisdom." Right. That's what we're talking about, Jack. <laughs> toxic wisdom. I mean, we hear it so often. People say, "Oh, well, they're the best in the business, so let's go with them," or they say, "Hey, we need it tomorrow, so we just have to go with the quickest solution." Or they say, "Oh, no, it's going to be too hard to change vendors. We can't do that. Let's just stick with who we have." Now, when somebody throws that into a conversation, it usually sounds kind of smart, but what it does is it kind of shuts off any other conversation, and it doesn't always lead to the best decision. Yeah. So what was the, what was the kind of the genesis behind this? What was the spark or experience that you had where you realized these expensive sentences were prevalent? I was back as director of procurement, Ian, back in my uh, my full fledged procurement days, <laughs> at uh, at a big multi uh, multinational financial services company, and I was looking for ways to save the company money and ways where we might get more value. And so we found this vendor that was a million dollars a year, almost exactly, and I didn't know who it was. It was in the HR organization, so I went to the HR director and said, "Hey, hey, what is this vendor?" And they explained to me, well, well these, this is our background check provider. They're the ones that help figure out whether people we're hiring um, have the right background and whether they can be trusted with sensitive information. I said, okay, that, that sounds good. And she said, you know, I know what you're trying to do and forget about it. <laughs> so, so I said, oh, okay, well, what am I trying to do and why should I forget about it? 
And she said, well, I know you're trying to save money because that's what you procurement people do, but you can forget about it because these guys haven't raised our prices in eight years. And, and Jack, let me, let me just interrupt for a sec because this is something that I guarantee people in the audience right now face this all the time where they're talking to somebody who says, well, look, I mean, gee, we'd love to talk, but we're happy with our current vendor. I mean, they haven't raised our price in eight months, eight years, whatever it happens to be. So, you know, we're already in good hands. And so I want, I want to make sure that people connect this, that oftentimes on the sales side, you're going to run into these expensive sentences that um, that might not just be from a procurement standpoint, right? Oh, I think that's right. It might go deep into the organization, and they might be the reason that you're not getting a fair shot. So, so let's play this one out. So, sure. I, you know, I, that sounded good to me. It hadn't raised the prices in a while, but I didn't really know anything about background checks. And I went to the vice president of HR and said, "Hey, hey, tell me about these guys." And he said, "Oh, you know, they're great. They do really good work." And do you know what? They haven't raised their prices in eight years. So, <laughs> so, so he didn't know much more about background checks than I did, candidly. And uh, he agreed after some conversation that we'd go shopping. We'd do a little uh, procurement exercise and see what the market offered. So my first call, of course, was to the sales rep of the incumbent vendor. And, and Ian, you know, and your audience knows how, how fun it is as a salesperson to get a call from somebody in procurement, right? Of course. <laughs> so, so he was sort of on guard and he said, hey, why are you calling me? You know, we do really great work for you guys. And you know what else? <laughs> Let me guess. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't raised your prices in eight years. Oh, so, what right. a shocker. Something about that. Now, the short story, we went out to the marketplace and found that a lot had changed. We got a better product for less than a half the price. Wow. So, you know, as a procurement guy, I, I love this, right? You kind of ride in on the white horse and bring the, the seven-figure savings. But if you flip that around, you know, our company had lost a lot of money. We'd spent probably millions of dollars more than we should have over several years. And, and what was the reason? The reason was this distorted idea that had taken root that – hey, they haven't raised our prices, so we must be getting a great deal. At our home, we're looking at our electric bill, and all of a sudden I thought, man, we're paying an awful lot for electricity. This can't be right. And so Deborah, my wife, calls up the the, um, the electric company and says, hey, you know, our rates seem really high. And they said, oh, yeah, well, you can get a uh, – you can actually get a much lower rate now. And, okay. and, and and Deborah says, okay, well, I think we're going to switch providers. They said, why? I said, well, because if you're telling me I can get the exact same thing for something less and you've known that and you've let me pay this additional amount for a year, you're not the vendor I want to work with anymore because you're not looking out for me. As opposed to if you look at like the, the uh, mobile phone companies now, they'll proactively reach out to you and say, hey, there's a program that will probably save you a little bit of money. And that way they build retention. Well, it's interesting the biases that we have. We all have them and, and the assumptions that we hold on to because we think we're getting a good deal or, or we think we don't want to change. Another one that I think probably a lot of your listeners come up against is this perception that it's so hard to change, right? Uh, you know, it, it's too late for us to change providers now. No, you know, we've been working with this marketing firm for the last six years. They know us really well. Or it, it would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to make that programming change. Now, now, these ideas set in pretty deep in an organization. They become company lore. They become things that people really believe, but they're often not true. Yeah. So, so dive into that a little bit deeper for us. 
you know, sometimes they come in the form of proverbs, like, well, you, you got to dance with the one that brought you to the prom, right? We heard that one, <laughs> right? Or, 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 or you can't switch horses in midstream. Or, well, you've got to keep at it. Rome wasn't built in a day. So, so all of those three I just mentioned, they get at this idea that, well, staying on the same course is the right thing to do. Now, of course, there are moments when that is exactly the right advice. But what happens is if that kind of comes and reinforces and underlines a bias that we have, or maybe a little bit of laziness because we don't really want to do the work to investigate the marketplace, or maybe we don't really make the change because we're comfortable with the relationships, well, then those proverbs end up costing us a lot of money and leading us to decisions that are not the best for our teams. So, so Jack, what does somebody do if you're – let's say you're selling into a, into a company and you've got a solution that you know is better for them. And they say, well, you know what, hey, that's all good and well, but we, we can't switch horses midstream. Or, you know, it's going to be too disruptive or too expensive to switch to something else or one of these other expensive sentences that could really derail their decisions – and and get in the way of their success. What 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 should somebody do when you face that? Because I imagine it's the same for the outside sales professional as it is for the inside procurement person. I think it is, Ian. And uh, well, let's talk about one approach that probably won't work. And and that approach is to say, well, that's a stupid thing to say. <laughs> you're, you're oversimplifying this, and, and let's let's look at this more carefully, and we'll get to the right answer. Now, of course, that's not really the way to win friends and influence people. Um, I think it's more effective to really sort of come alongside. And, and I propose three questions. And, and, and first, you know, whenever you encounter a situation where you feel like you're stuck or you feel like the resources are scarce or you feel like somebody's special and so they can't be treated like other people, th- those are warning signs. Those are things to be aware of that you may be in an expensive sentence environment that may really be costing you. Maybe it's costing you just by not letting you see other options. Maybe it's not financial. So hit those again for me, Jack. So if they're stuck? Stuck, scarce, and special. Okay. Those are the things to keep our radar on for. If we're stuck, if something is scarce, or if someone is special. Yep. Now, special can be seen as a good thing, but when we're in a situation where we're dependent upon someone or they're irreplaceable or we can't treat them like we do other people, right – then that causes problems. Yeah, so there's always there's always the notion of, for example, in government procurements, the sole source justification. And the thing that I always emphasize to people is, look, sole source justification is not your justification why you should be the sole source. If there's a valid reason, that's fine. If there's a valid reason you're special, then at least you have to compare it against what would happen if you didn't use these special people? Because, yeah, they may be special, but it might not be the only people in the world who can do this. That's so true. And here's what happens, Ian. I know you're going to like this because we touched on this in Same Side Selling. When you have the sense that someone is special, right? They're the only ones that can do this certain uh, particular task or they're the only ones with the access to this information or the only ones with these relationships, whatever it is. What's happening is you're overly focused on the resource, And what do you need to do when you're overly focused on the resource? As we know, you need to pick up your eyes and look at the result. Because if you go to your business result, well, what is it you're trying to do? Are you trying to get more sales? Are you trying to reduce your cost? Are you trying to get into a new market? You know, there are a handful of high-level business results. But there are lots of ways to get there. And so when we end up saying, well, this person, this team, this technology is special. We can't use anything else. That really puts us in a box that is almost always artificial. Yeah. 
So, so you, you start to get to the three questions. If, if either, if you're stuck, if something is scarce, or if you feel that resource is special or you're special. Yeah, you know, the, the tricky thing about these expensive sentences is that there almost always is some kernel of truth in them, right? Um, somebody says, well, you get what you pay for. Okay, that, that, that's a classic one. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, we're, we're paying more to these other guys, and I know you're trying to sell into this and give us the service. But, you know, our, our, our company believes that you get what you pay for. We don't mind paying a premium. Now, now sometimes it's true that you do get a higher quality, right, for a higher cost, but often it's not true. So – in my opinion, the best way to challenge that is to gently come alongside and ask three questions. And the first question is, why is that true? And so the assumption is, yes, that is true. You do get what you pay for, at least some of the time. Because the next question is, well, when is it true? What's the context in which this is, this is possible and this applies? And what the implication is there, of course, is sometimes that applies and sometimes it doesn't. So we need to understand the specifics of this situation to know whether this expensive sentence is really good wisdom or toxic advice. Yep. Then the third question. So we've asked, why is it true? Affirming. When is it true? Bringing some context. And then ask, well, what if it's not true? So now we really want to paint the possibility that, hey, maybe this constraint that you've got in your head isn't really reality. And what if it's not? That could be great. You know, what if you can pay less and get an even better product like happened with us with the background checks? Yep. You know, what if there are other vendors that can do this for you? What if there's another way to solve this problem that could really give you a lot more resources and a lot more freedom? Wouldn't that be a cool thing? Yeah, I love that. So why is it true? When is that true? And what if it's not true? And I I almost wonder, as you were describing these, I wonder if you could even take the next step and say, so under what circumstance would that not be true? I like that. Yeah, I like that. I, I think that's really good. I mean, I mean the, again, the point here is to replace an absolute, right, with, with uh, something that really brings a little more context and gets to a real answer. And, and the idea here, you know, sometimes I use for those three questions, sometimes I use the, uh, the little acronym, engage, examine, enlighten. Yep. And if, you're re- if your listeners can remember that better, then that's great. Engage, examine, enlighten. And the idea is that you, know, you don't want to tell somebody they're wrong. You want to come alongside and affirm them. But then you want to come you know, look at it together in a same side sort of way, right? Examine the particulars. Then that third step is enlighten because when you're showing somebody that what they thought was true is not necessarily constraining them, you're doing them quite a favor, yeah. Right. I mean, this is something that can really change perspectives, you know, free up resources and in some cases change lives when someone realizes that this belief they've had, this thing they've repeated themselves again and again is not necessarily holding them back. Well, and the thing the thing that I love about this notion of the expensive sentence is that I, I think that a lot of people will think initially, oh, these are statements that someone in procurement is going to make or rather that, that a line of business person is going to make that's going to convince them to pay more. And the reality is that a lot of times the expensive sentence could be, no, no, we're going with these guys because they're the cheapest price. We're going to go with, with this vendor because they offer the least expensive per hour rate. And so, look, we just feel that everybody's a commodity. So we're going to get this price that is the lowest per hour price which focuses once again on resources, not on results. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, it's the lowest unit price. That's often an expensive sentence, right? Because they're not framing the total cost. They're just looking at one element of it. So, so much of what you write about and, and your interviews, Ian, is about uh, total value. It's about, you know, seeing the results and about helping your your listeners and your audience add more value to the people they're selling to. And, and, and I love that. And, you know, think about if you could establish yourself as uh, an expert, right, as a trusted advisor, as we talked about often, and then as somebody that can not only sort of help the prospect or the buyer find more information or learn more about their situation, but even help them just find more options in general and, and help them see a broader perspective that keeps them out of boxes and, and gives them more freedom and more resources. Yeah, you know, I I just I, I love I love that notion. It's 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 interesting how often when I'm speaking to an audience and I and I'll say to them, well, so ask these sorts of questions, and then you can have this dialogue with procurement, and they'll say, oh no, the procurement people, you know, their biggest concern is that they get the lowest price. And I said, you know what? I don't think that's true. And in my discussions with Jack, I don't think that's true. So what's the what's the biggest fear? that the purchasing or procurement people typically have, Jack? Well, you know, I think that, you know, I do believe, like you said, that that's not always true. And I think it's becoming less and less true. I mean, that this old school procurement of beating up the suppliers and getting the lowest unit cost, you know, that still exists in some corners, I think, but but it's more and more rare. And, and by the way, I'm guessing if you're buying a true commodity, that's exactly what you should be doing, is getting yeah. the, lowest, the, the lowest price you can while still ensuring quality and delivery. And maybe that's true, but but I tell you, you know, Ian, as you and I see everywhere, true commodities are, are becoming less and less common in that innovation and disruption is hitting every sector. You know, even those things that seem so old world and so uh, mundane, um, but that's happening. And so when you ask what the biggest fear is, you know, I would think that for a chief procurement officer, the biggest fear is that the CEO comes into his office one day and says, hey, all our competitors are using this method. Of, of manufacturing and why aren't we or all of them are, are going to this level of supplier that gives them this kind of value and why aren't we or, or why are we stuck here so if you miss out on innovation uh as and getting total value in the name of just saving a few dollars or lowering a unit cost yeah that's a very short-term strategy and that's something that's going to serve any buyers very poorly yeah it, it often gets back to the same notion of results meaning look if the procurement people negotiate a deal, it doesn't matter what they paid. If they don't get the results for the business, it's going to be seen as a failure. That's right. And, and, you know, some of your salespeople are saying, yeah, you know, I've been trying to say that. I've been talking to this prospect about that, and they're just not listening. And I just want to allow that there are times when you need to kind of say, okay, look, this buyer is not getting it. This company culture, you know, may be a little bit yep. uh, uh, backward, and I just got to shake the dust off my feet and go on to the next one because as long as that is the case. But if you keep talking about results and you arm your buyers with the language and the tools to go back internally – and help educate their teams more broadly, that will serve you well, and that will position you to have a much higher impact. Yeah, that's great. What are some of the, what are some of the other gotchas when it comes to expensive sentences? What are the other things that people should listen for and look for? And I love this idea of, the, of this three-question side of engaging, examining, and enlightening. So what, what are some of the other, the other common expensive sentences that you can look for that give you an indication that maybe you got to probe a little deeper. Well, here's a big one that I know a lot of your listeners have heard. Uh, we're different. That won't work for us. 
you know, claiming exemption to what's happening in the broader industry because your culture, your company is different. Now, that can be a pretty deep disease at certain organizations, so you got to be careful. Yep. But but maybe it's something, again, you can gently challenge and say, well, you know, yeah, I, I know you're different in this way and every company is different. But, you know, some of your competitors are having results doing this, and, and maybe that's important to you as well. Yep. Or, or, you know, along that way, that's the way we've always done it, right? <laughs> uh, hey, that's just how we do it here. Uh, that's how the whole industry does it. Now, sometimes that's the most expensive sentence you never hear because people won't often claim that precedent is the reason they're doing something and the only reason. But I think that really drives a lot more of what we do than than we realize. Yeah, I've I've been told the story. There's a um, there's a law firm that I, that I that I spoke with about working with their team, and and I had only worked with one other law firm um, prior to this. And mm-hmm. the other law firm, we had really carved out a niche for them, and they were just dominating in this one space. So we'll call we'll call we'll call that you know that the the, the law firm that I'd worked with before, law firm A. So I'm speaking with law firm B and talking to them about different strategies for how they can carve out their niche. And, and they said, now, you know, it really doesn't work for law firms, and and for us, it really wouldn't apply to us. And the only law firm who we're consistently losing to time and time again is law firm A, and I'm sure that they're not doing anything like this at all. Uh oh. <laughs> and of course, and of course, I can't tell them that actually the people that are eating their lunch are doing exactly what I'm suggesting they do in this other area. And I would have loved to have had these three questions that you just shared because I don't know that that I mean part of it was. I I followed, I guess, the advice that you just gave people that says sometimes people just don't get it and you walk away, which is often what I do in in my business today is the people who don't get it aren't the clients I'm looking for because there are enough organizations that get it that I'd rather work with them. (laughs) Absolutely. You have to do that, right? You have to um, use this at some point to qualify your leads and to invest in the ones that are most receptive to how you're going to share it. But but, but let let me share two more that I know are – are pretty common in the sales context. And one is when, when the customer says, oh, we can probably do that ourselves. Yep. Right? So if you're in a new category or maybe selling some sort of outsourcing service, um, that's something that teams often think. But um, I've got a chapter in the book devoted to that because it's such a uh, misleading idea that if we do something ourselves, it'll probably be better, cheaper, <clears throat> faster. You know, it, it's usually quite the opposite. Yeah, I, I, use, that, I use that model for, for dental work. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's it's so funny, but you know, and, and there are things that you think, oh, we got to keep in house. That now, you know, because of technology, because of uh, the communications and globalization, look, anything that you're doing, there are a hundred or a thousand companies that have already done it, right? And there are probably are a handful of companies that specialize in it and do it much better than you could ever do it. And and that's the reality. And so our assumption, you know, 30 years ago might have been, well, we can probably do it ourselves, you know, at lower cost and better quality. The assumption today should really be the opposite. Unless you can really demonstrate that you can or need to do something in-house, it's probably going to be much better done by outside experts who focus on that task exclusively. Sure. And then what's and what's the uh, what's the last one? The other one deals with time fatigue or, or time uh, scarcity. We're too swamped to deal with that now, right? And I get this a lot in my business because the problem with what I sell is it's important, but it's not urgent a lot of the times. So they say, yeah, you know, I love what you're just saying. I love what you're selling. I know it would help our company. We just got other t- topics, you know, that are on the front burner right now. We can't get to it. We're too swamped to deal with that now. 
<laughs> we're we're too busy to save money. Our our resources are too scarce to save resources. And sometimes, Ian, we're too busy to save time. Yeah. Right? Because they say, look, look, you need to invest a few hours in this, yes, but look, month two, month three, we'll be saving you time. And that's going to help you focus on what you really do well. So, again, coming alongside, gently challenging some of these assumptions in a way that is same side, not adversarial, not proving you're right, but saying, hey, I like the way you're looking at this, but but maybe we need to see the broader picture here, and maybe that'll open up some freedom for you. Well, and I, and I love circling back to those three questions with every one of these as I'm looking through it, those three questions apply. So someone says, well, you know, we can probably do that ourselves. Okay, well, why, why is that the case? Why, why, why do you feel that you're better off doing it yourselves? Oh, because we can do this, 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 that. Great. So, so when is that true that you're better off doing it yourselves? Well, when we have the resource to do it. Okay. Hmm. Well, what if, what if you don't have the resources? What, what if it's not the case? Oh, then we'd really be in trouble. And then, okay, so under what circumstance would it not be true? Well, I guess our current circumstance. <laughs> and then, and then now they just figured out that they're probably better off. And, and, as you and I both teach, it's all about getting to the truth. So if the truth is that they are better off doing it in-house, if the truth is that they are different and special, um, then we need to know that too. But in most cases, I think we're going to uncover that that's not the case. That's exactly right. And you know, I start with the premise that these expensive sentences, again, many times they're quite apt and they really are leading you to the right conclusion – and that's kind of the challenge, right? Because we need to be able to discern when is this good wisdom and when is it misleading. It always sounds good. and It always sounds pithy and smart. And the funny thing is I love these little sayings. You know, I love to quote Benjamin Franklin and say, well, a penny saved is a penny earned. Um, and sometimes that's true. Yeah. But often it's not. Yeah. Well, and, and let's face it, that there are there are many people who have – who have gotten themselves in situations where they've sold something to the client without delivering results. And when that happens, we start building memories for our clients who say, I had a vendor who didn't look out for my best interest, and that builds mistrust. So when people say to me, well, I don't understand why this client doesn't trust us, I often say, look, it may not be you. It might be anybody who looks like you <laughs> because they've been burned so many times before. And you're getting kind of deep here, right, Ian, because this is a human thing and it applies to personal relationships as well, where we get, we've been burned before and then we make a vow and we say, well, I'll never, right? I'll never let a vendor do that to me again, right? Or yeah. I'll never put myself in a position where I have to rely on that again. And, of course, we know that in all areas, um, those vows can really serve us poorly. Yeah. So what's the, what's the biggest thing that people can do when you encounter these expensive sentences? And I do want to make sure that people realize that – if your client says, "Oh, you're the only vendor we can work with," you can't take you can't take that as an opportunity to look out for your own interests and not theirs. So I believe it's the sales professional. Um, it's your responsibility to ask these three questions whether the whether what they're telling you is in your favor or not. You're still trying to get to the truth of it. What's the single biggest thing that people should do when they encounter these expensive sentences? Well, I think it's quite simple, and it gets to those three questions, but it's even more basic than that. It's just kind of wondering out loud, huh, is that an expensive sentence? You know, I, I wonder if I just said an expensive sentence, or I wonder if maybe you just said an expensive sentence. 
my, my goal with this book, Ian, is pretty big. <laughs> I, I want to get into the culture. I want this to be something that people are talking about a lot in terms of the phrase expensive sentences because I think it's a very simple handle for something that happens a lot. And the good thing about it is when you say, hey, was that an expensive sentence, Ian? You know, If I say that to you, I'm not assaulting you, right? I'm not saying you had a bad idea or even a stupid idea because sometimes expensive sentences are quite right. But I'm just opening up a conversation and saying, hey, let's look at that a little bit more closely and make sure that we're not coming to a false conclusion based on something that sounds good but might not quite apply here. That's great. I'm, I'm sure over the coming months and years that people will be asking that question quite a, quite a bit. Is that an expensive sentence? And I just – I love the sound of that. So, Jack, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you and what's the best way for them to find the book? Well, the book's on Amazon. It's exciting, and, and I know some people will listen to this uh, kind of before the launch date. I actually have a free uh, book offer for anybody who pre-orders. They can send me an email of the receipt. I'm going to give them a second book, which is Wise Replies, A Field Guide to Expensive Sentences, um, which is really fun because it's just a list of a bunch of sentences and responses. Um, but if they get this afterwards, you can find it on Amazon and Kindle or anything like that, and they can find me at jackquarles.com. That's awesome. Well, Jack, th thanks so much for sharing your wisdom, and uh, we're all going to be cautious and aware of those expensive sentences. Ian, thanks so much. Great to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time to subscribe and to share this episode with friends and colleagues. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap of the key takeaways that I think Jack shared on this episode. First, these expensive sentences not only tend to cost companies more when it comes to buying, but also starve them of opportunities of listening to a vendor like you about a solution that might be better for them. When you hear those key objections, keep in mind that it usually comes down to somebody either being stuck, special, or scarce. And remember, Jack gives us a three-step formula to engage, examine, and enlighten. So we engage by asking, why is that true? We examine by saying, when is that true? And I added, under what circumstance would it not be true? And finally, enlighten, what if it's not true? I think these will give you great insight in helping your customers avoid those expensive sentences and uncover opportunities. Remember, this show gets its direction from you, the listener. If there's a guest you think I should have on the program, if there's a topic you want me to cover or a question you want me to answer, drop me a note personally at ian at ianaltman.com. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, even your customer.